We live in the world, which is headed and run by the prince of the power of the air. But we live by the Spirit, discerning the times. For he who is spiritual discerns all things. Sharpen your discernment. Build your faith. Listen to the Word and World Team. Minister the Word of God through conversational theology, piercing the darkness of this present evil age. Hello darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Because a vision softly creeping left its seeds while I was sleeping. And the vision that was planted in my brain still remains within the sound of silence. Well, welcome back. This is Politics Friday with Bob Brandon and Hampton Keithley. And we're going to uh, be talking about James Madison today, I believe. We're going to get to it, Hampton, but I'm I got some burning issues that we need to touch on bef- before we get there. Um, okay. we, we, we had a conversation prior to, to coming on the broadcast here, but <clears throat> my spirit is so disturbed and it's um, hard emotionally to wrap your brain around what I think is actually happening in our country. And what I'm getting at is I, I think we're being killed on purpose with the vaccines here's um here's some tidbits you you can dive in when you feel free but this is well known now if if you don't know this as a listener um, contemplate this and draw some conclusions so the congress is getting ready to pass this mandate that everybody has to be vaccinated of course you see that mandate in different forms biden has put that out to different companies um, and different national industries and institutions and so on have done that but the congress is getting ready to pass that mandate except for a group of people who do you suspect hampton that they might have an exemption for Uh, illegal aliens (laughs) perhaps you know, I, I don't know if, if there are more exemptions, but what, what I'm referring to is they're exempt. So Congress is exempt? Yeah. Now, why would you do that? If your whole motive is this is the biggest health thing, we've got to do this to stop this pandemic, everybody has to be vaccinated except us. Why, why take that stance? Yeah, that doesn't make any sense to me. <clears throat> well, unless <laughs> unless you're looking at it like I'm looking at it, like they know what the vaccine's doing and they want it to accomplish its goal and they don't want to be killed, then it would make perfect sense. Yeah, it would. That's, and those too, are, that's too horrendous to contemplate, though. I know those are such strong statements and yet, that is a reality. They did exempt themselves. What, what other motive could you posit, given what we're seeing in not, of course, in any kind of mainstream media way? They're complicit in the whole thing. They're very on board with what's going on. So if your normal news channels are mainstream, you're not going to hear this. But the things that I'm looking at are staggering in their implications. For instance, the latest check I did on the CDC website, which, I mean, they're a government institution, so I don't know how much I trust them, other than there's still probably a couple decent people there, right, that haven't sold their souls to the devil. But the the most recent number I saw for deaths from the vaccine was 15,000. And that was up 3,000 from when I looked at it a month ago. Mm -hmm. So if you combine that, 15,000 people have died of the vaccine. The way way they know that, just to elaborate on this a a little bit, is it gets reported to them. 
so so and so has the vaccine uh within a couple days they die of of something that was you know not on the radar right they were healthy people they didn't have issues they got the vaccine they died of a heart attack and so that gets sometimes that gets reported through the adverse events mm-hmm. that, get, that gets reported to the CDC. So that that's how they come up with their number, except they also have a report on the CDC website of how many of those events actually get reported to the CDC. So for instance, if I got the vaccine tomorrow and died two days later, I don't think my wife is going to call the CDC, right? I mean, you know, you're horrified, you're, you're so tied up with all the things that, that follow after a tragic death, right? You don't, it's not your first thought, oh, let me go call the CDC. So the upshot is they estimate, and this might be a conservative number. In other words, the number might be way higher than this, but they estimate that one in a hundred adverse events actually get reported. Now, is if we just take that number, that's 1.5 million people have died of the vaccine already. Right. Well, I have, I, I have a paramedic friend that told me that he's taking 16 year olds with dead from heart attacks two hours after the vaccine to the hospital and said, we need to report this. And they said, we're not reporting it. He's not considered vaccinated until at least 14 days after the vaccine. Yep. And so how many times that's just, you know, one guy that I know, how many times is that happening across, you know, the country? I have another yep. friend who's a data analyst for a hospital. And he said, they're not reporting these things. Correct. So, so I tend to think that 1.5 million is probably low. And if you add to that, not just what, what you contributed there, but the fact that, <clears throat> well, how do you know that was the result of a vaccine? You know, so-and-so dropped over dead. Well, now and then people do that unexpectedly, right? So I think the reporting is vastly underreported. Right. And e- even at that, you're looking at 1.5 million people. That's yeah. and <clears throat> now let's toss this in the mix. The uh, vaccine world itself is as sordid as you can imagine, and a lot of that happened um, due to a law. It's like in the mid '80s, maybe around 1986. Conservative guys, actually, at least by designation, you know, maybe they're rhinos, Republican in name only, but Evan Bayh and Robert Dole, you know, right. Bayh was, Bay was from Indiana, and they passed a law that Reagan signed it. They passed a law that you could um, patent things as a government employee. So we're paying people at our national health institutes, not just the NIH, but you know all the government institutions that work in the health field. Those are salaries paid by our taxes, and on top, so they're doing research because we're paying them to do that. Now that that's a good idea, except now on top of that, they can patent things. So how much money do you make on a patent that you know for all these vaccines? for instance. Well, I can remember in the world of uh, computer programming, if you're being paid by, say, Nortel or some, you know, AT&T to write some program for them, and they paid your salary, you don't get to patent your program. Yes. Yes. That's typically how it's done, except in the virology world. Mm -hmm. Except with that. So you can see the road to corruption, not that everybody follows that road, but you can see it's paved. That is smooth sailing. Now, let's add this fact. I, I can't give you a date. We could look it up and I could be precise about it, but there's there was established, maybe it was around the same time, what's called a vaccine court. 
So if, if you vaccinate your child and there's an adverse reaction, possibly even death, you, you don't get to sue the vaccine company because they made a faulty product in a normal court. You go to vaccine court and the rules in vaccine court are impossible for you to win your case. You may, in the best case scenario, get some money, maybe, but it's impossible to flat out win your case. And they're, they just completely protect vaccine companies. Well, thinking, and that would be that would be the reason that you label something a vaccine when it's not really co correct. So their motive, like this this messenger RNA quote vaccine, it's it's really gene therapy. It's not a vaccine, but they want it under the umbrella of a vaccine because then they're protected right. under the the vaccine laws. <clears throat> Here's another. Let's toss this into the mix. Fauci has been in his position roughly 40 some years. In that time, he's been responsible for the distribution of close, it's over 190, but it's close to $200 billion has flowed through his hands to distribute to the, the health institutes. How much power is that? Just a little. <laughs> and, you're, you know, we're talking about the founding fathers, right? It was their biggest fear that power corrupts. So you got to balance the powers. There is no balance on Tony Fauci. Mm -hmm. He's been in charge of close to $200 billion. So just about everybody in those organizations owes their job to him. And he makes them aware of that. Right. If you don't play by his rules, it, you know, there goes your job. He's in charge of your income. He can do that. If, if you're doing great research, a lot of those people just get into it with a pure heart. They're brilliant scientists. They want to figure stuff out and help humanity. But you got to play by his rules. Once you enter that arena, you got to get your lab funded. That means somehow you got to go through him or one of his lackeys down at a huge organization. Right. But you can see how that thing is set up for ultimate corruption. Let's add this into the mix. Since the early 80s, it has been well known because some of those virologists have made this well known to Tony Fauci that the blood supply is corrupt in at least in America, probably worldwide. In, in what and, way? Well, in this way, when they grow vaccines, for instance, like say you're getting the measles, you know, smallpox, polio, stuff like that, those kind of vaccines, <clears throat> which, again, the idea of that is it's a great idea. I mean, that's helped, you know, Western health tremendously. A good vaccine program, you know, that's pure is so helpful. But here, here's the issue. You have to grow a polio virus, for instance. Well, you need some tissue to grow that in, in order to make the vaccine. You gotta raise the virus, so to speak. Those are uh, grown in what's called a cell line. Those cell lines are not human. They don't grow them in human tissue. If they do, it's aborted human tissue. But usually it's mouse tissue, sometimes, mm -hmm. do sometimes dog, sometimes other ant bats and stuff like that. But <clears throat> when they're growing these viruses in order to make the vaccine in a mouse cell line, you're picking up mouse viruses. So when you get the polio vaccine, you're not just getting the polio virus in a, you know, in a attenuated sense, like where, where the virus is weakened. So, you know, the true idea of a vaccine, right? Mm -hmm. you're, you're not just getting that, you're getting other mouse viruses. So you, you look at the number, for instance, of complications in the last 40 years, like the rise of autism, mm -hmm. and you look at the rise in vaccinations, and it's a one-to-one -one match. 
And a scientist will, the first thing out of their mouth is they'll say, well, correlation doesn't equal causation. Right. <laughs> well, how about this proverb? Where there's smoke, there's fire. <laughs> okay. I, I understand correlation doesn't equal causation, but you better start looking at that a little closer, why those numbers match so well. So anyway, Hampton, we're picking up all these things from animals that, that don't bother the mouse. You know, their species is used to that. They deal with it. It's not debilitating to them. You start putting mice virus in humans and it's bad news. And so the, the rise of all these autoimmune diseases in the last 40 years, AIDS and so on, it's all because these cell lines are corrupt. Fauci has known that for 40 years. And the blood supply itself, like say, say you donate blood. Mm -hmm. Well, you've got those viruses in you. Maybe for you, it's not a problem. But for somebody else, it might be. These are huge, gigantic issues, which they can actually deal with. Our scientists are good enough to know how to clean that stuff up. And Fauci's known it for 40 years and he won't do it. Why? Why would you not purify it? Why would you not wipe out most of these diseases? I mean, the answer to that is so horrifying, right? It's because it's one of two reasons. He wants to, you know, CYA. He doesn't want to admit that he's known this for 40 years and done nothing about it. Or he wants people to die. Neither of those are good options, but, no. but those are facts in that world. The virology world is one of the most corrupt worlds you've ever seen. Not that they're, and that, that's not casting aspersions on side. There are plenty of good ones in there with good hearts, but the system is corrupt and their voice will just get squelched. Anybody like you, like you see happening, Judy Mikevitz, if she speaks out, she's not going to have a platform to speak. They're going to throw her in jail. They're going to put up all sorts of, excuse me, interset, internet news that, oh, she's a weirdo. She doesn't know what she's talking about. She knows exactly what she's talking about. Yeah. And she's not alone. There's other people that are at her level all saying the same things. Frank Rossetti, uh, Montagnier in France, Nobel Prize winner for really suppressing AIDS, doing the pioneering work on that. And uh, Rossetti has the award. He, he's worked with Mikevitz for years. They worked together in the Sable. One of the two greatest scientific discoveries the last hundred years, Rossetti. These, these aren't minor players. And they're all saying the same thing, that this is insane it's killing people and you know the power players are staying silent about it for some nefarious reason it's it's staggering hampton this is happening before our eyes and i always wondered i asked some kids about the high school kids about this the other day you know you read the history books and and here are the tragedies that that went down in world war ii and i asked the kids how did the German people, how did they follow an insane person like Hitler? They go, I know, isn't that crazy? Why would people do that? And I said, well, I think it's happening right now. Why aren't people, and obviously some are, but you would think everybody would be up in arms over this. Everybody. It's incredible what's happening. So... Yeah, well, and somehow we've gotten to the point where if we try to present the facts and the numbers, the people go, I just don't believe that. You're correct. I've had that response, you know, dozens of times. I don't believe your numbers. And yeah. so obviously, you know, the media is involved. And it. I think ultimately, I mean, correct me, but ultimately... It comes down to worldview. And if you don't believe there's a God and science, in quotation, is your truth teller, then you're not going to believe what I'm saying. 
And but, yeah, and that doesn't make sense because the data, the numbers are the are the science. Yeah. And they're minimized. You know what I mean? I think the numbers are worse than I'm even saying. Yeah. But it seems like you can validate those. What motive does the CDC have to lie to you as far as, you know, like putting too many deaths down there? They have no motive to do that. So I'm sure that number 15,000 we're seeing is, is not, is the tip of the iceberg. It's not the real number. They have no motive to tell you the huge number. Yeah, I was listening to Eric Metaxas this week, and he was interviewing Ryan Cole, who's a doctor that's mm-hmm. trying to sound mm-hmm. the alarm. And, yep. um, you know, he was asking the doctor, why would people do this? And the doctor can't bring himself to be as forthright as you are, you know, because they can't right. imagine why somebody or some group of people would be willing to do all of this. I, I understand that. I, I really do get that response. It's hard for me to wrap my brain about the, around that. But so what I have is a critical part of my worldview being a devout believer is that ever since Genesis 3, mankind is fallen. The evil knows no bounds. The reason we don't see even greater evil is because God restrains it. But it's not impossible for me to believe that people would be that evil. Well, and then the Bible talks about him removing the restraining influence or the restrainer yep. that that's coming in the, in the end yes. times. And yes. Now maybe, maybe, you know, you tend to think about that if you're like me, um, not a super thinker, <laughs> right? Just a kind of an armchair theologian. Oh, he will remove it. You think that's an instantaneous thing. Maybe that's, I mean, the truth of the statement, right? He will remove the, the thing that's restraining evil, I would take that as a, a ministry of the Holy Spirit. But maybe that's a process. Well, he turned them over to a depraved mind. And yeah. so here we are. Here we are. But if you don't have that worldview, it is so hard to think if people would actually do this. Here's another factor in the whole thing. There are many, many movers and shakers, power players in the world that think we're overpopulated. And you can see them rationalizing murder that way, right? We need to, they don't think of it as murder. They think of it as we need to reduce the population. (laughs) Yeah. And I've heard of the guide stones in Georgia somewhere where they've got these pillars that are like Stonehenge and one of, and they have a, their principles or their list of goals. And one of them is to reduce the world population to 500 million. Yeah. So they think of the amount of death that is, what, what are there? Seven and a half billion or so. Yeah. And so you're going to wipe out 7 billion people. And I don't think they would blink an eye at that. Which is, of course, they don't see themselves as people to be eliminated, right? But I, that's what I see happening. So all that to say, um, it is hor- horrifying to contemplate these things, but the value, Hampton, of our podcast is huge. Because through our point of view, you can look in a sense I don't want to say more than is real, but you can look through the Lord's eyes at the world and see what's going on. And you know, our home is in heaven. We're just sojourners here at this time. The United States is being taken out of the picture. That's pretty clear to me. Well, and that's the next section in the Nancy Piercy book. There you go. That's what Christianity has moved to Asia and Africa. Yeah, as main main basis. Yeah. 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 
so press on with your good work hampton we got to keep getting the word out there you know in a way that opens people's eyes um more more scholarly i guess i might say as opposed to just a rant but it's important to see what's going on yeah so how did that rabbit trail introduction lead us to james madison oh well thank you but what so here's here's how first remember we're going to read a, a chapter of the bible so yeah. we're, we're going to read uh first samuel chapter two but the way that leads to madison is we've mentioned this you know dozens of times but one of the core beliefs of the founding fathers was that mankind was corrupt right the fallen nature of mankind we've we spent a whole podcast on that just about and that doesn't mean that people are as bad as they could be i don't want you to you know walk around today looking at every person like they need to be incarcerated forever uh, but it does mean that there it's corrupt there's nothing any person on their own in and of themselves will ever be able to present to the lord as salvation worthy right i'm good enough that you should let me into heaven i'm good enough on my own you know one of the passages we've we've looked at in this regard is the abimelech passage in the old testament where he ends up with with abraham's wife sarah and his whole kingdom goes barren and he has a dream god shows up in his dream says well the reason for the barrenness is you got abraham's wife and Abimelech says, well, I, you know, he told me it was his sister. And besides, I haven't touched her. And God says, I didn't let you touch her. <laughs> right. In other words, don't be bringing that to me as righteousness, Abimelech. I know you haven't touched her. It's because I kept you from touching her. Right. Right. So and think, think of Jesus saying you know like concerning lust you even look at her you, who's who's not who's not convicted on that yeah <laughs> right so <clears throat> to get back to james madison of all the founding fathers he was the most dogged on that issue that people are corrupt so we need to divine devise a system with that in mind. So we'll read about that in a minute, but we're going to start with 1 Samuel chapter 2 because thinking of biblical kinds of politics, when, when you start getting into the kings, you're, you're seeing politics in the Bible front and center, aren't you? Right. I mean, it's, it's government. And so we start with Samuel because that's where the first kings, Saul and then David are introduced and you can see their context. So at the historical time of first Samuel chapter, you know, at the beginning chapter one and chapter two, we're still in the period that we would call the judges, which doesn't mean like Supreme Court justices right the term judge the biblical judge is more like a deliverer a warrior deliverer so israel existed at this time as 12 tribes kind of loosely knit together but ultimately related right they're the family of they're the descendants of abraham the family ultimately the family of jacob and his uh, 12 boys but they they don't have a national government, though they exist as a people group and in what we call the land, but they don't really have a national government. They're, they're governed by judges. Samuel is a judge. His mother's name, we don't see that yet in the text. We're going to see that in a chapter or two. His mother's Hannah, Eli was the current judge when Samuel was born. So <clears throat> here's 1 Samuel chapter 2. The, you, you know chapter 1. People remember that from last week. So I'm not going to lay that context again. Hannah prayed. My heart has rejoiced in the Lord. 
My horn has been raised high because of the Lord. I have loudly denounced my enemies. Indeed, I rejoice in your deliverance. No one is holy like the Lord. There's no one other than you. There's no rock like our God. Don't keep speaking so arrogantly. Proud talk should now come out of your mouth. For the Lord is a God who knows. He evaluates what people do. The bows of warriors are shattered, but those who stumble have taken on strength. The well-fed hire themselves out to earn food, but the hungry no longer lack. Even the barren woman has given birth to seven, but the one with many children has declined. The Lord both kills and gives life. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord impoverishes and makes wealthy. He humbles and he exalts. He lifts the weak from the dust. He raises the poor from the ash heap to set them with princes. He bestows on them an honored position. The foundations of the earth belong to the Lord. He placed the world on them. He watches over his holy ones, but the wicked are made speechless in the darkness. For it is not by one's own strength that one prevails. The Lord shatters his adversaries. He thunders against them from the heavens. The Lord executes judgment to the ends of the earth. He will strengthen his king and exalt the power of his anointed one. Then Elkanah went back home to Ramah. The boy was serving the Lord with the favor of Eli, the priest. But the sons of Eli were wicked men. They did not acknowledge the Lord's authority. This was the priest's routine with the people. Whenever anyone was making a sacrifice, the priest's attendant would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand. Just as the meat was boiling, he would jab it into the basin, kettle, cauldron, or pot. Everything that the fork would bring up, the priest would take for himself. This is how they used to treat all the Israelites who came there to Shiloh. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's attendants would come and say to the person who was making the sacrifice, give some meat for the priest to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. If the individual said to him, they should certainly burn the fat away first, then take for yourself whatever you wish. He would say, no, give it now. If not, I'll take it by force. The sin of these young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they treated the Lord's offering with contempt. Now Samuel was ministering with favor of the Lord. The boy was dressed in a linen ephod. His mother used to make him a small robe and bring it up to him from time to time when she would go up with her husband to make the annual sacrifice. Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife saying, may the Lord establish descendants for you from this woman in place of the one that she dedicated to the Lord. Then they would go to their home. And indeed the Lord attended to Hannah. She got pregnant and gave birth to three sons and two daughters. But the boy Samuel grew up before the Lord. Eli was very old. He would hear about everything that his sons used to do to all the people of Israel how they used to go to bed with the women who were stationed at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So he said to them, why do you do these things, these evil things, which I hear about from all these people? No, my sons, for the report that I hear circulating among the Lord's people is not good. If a man sins against a man, one may appeal to God on his behalf. But if a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him then? But Eli's sons would not listen to their father. Indeed, the Lord had decided to kill them. However, the boy Samuel was growing up and finding favor both with the Lord and with people. Then a man of God came to Eli and said to him, This is what the Lord has said. I plainly revealed myself to your ancestors' house when they were slaves to the house of Pharaoh in Egypt. I chose your ancestors from all the tribes of Israel to be my priests, to offer sacrifice on my altar, to burn incense, and to bear the ephod before me. I gave to your ancestors' house all the fire offerings made by the Israelites. 
Why are you scorning my sacrifice and my offering that I commanded for my dwelling place? You've honored your sons more than you have me by having made yourselves fat from the best parts of the offerings of my people Israel. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel says, I really did say that your house and your ancestors house would serve me forever. But now the Lord says, may it never be. For I will honor those who honor me, but those who despise me will be cursed. In fact, days are coming when I will remove your strength and the strength of your father's house. There will not be an old man in your house. You will see trouble in my dwelling place. Israel will experience blessings, but there will not be an old man in your house for all time. Any man of yours that I do not cut off from my altar, I will cause his eyes to fail will cause him grief, and all those born to your family will die by the sword of man. This will be a confirming sign for you that will be fulfilled through your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. In a single day, they both will die. Then I'll raise up for myself a faithful priest. He'll do what is in my heart and soul. I will build for him a lasting dynasty will serve my chosen one for all time. He will serve my chosen one for all time. Everyone who remains in your house will come to bow before him for a little money and for a scrap of bread. Each will say, assign me to a priestly task so I can eat a scrap of bread. That was chapter two. What stood out to you, Hampton? Well, it seems pretty appropriate to what we were just talking about and the corruption of the leaders. There you go. There you go. You know, we are going to get to James Madison. A number of things stood out to me, but one kind of fun one for me. So my mom growing up was, uh, we, we were not, I was not raised in a Christian household, but my mom was a reader. She worked for a bookstore as a reviewer. So in order to keep me occupied, she would say, she put me in sports, right? Swimming. But she would also say, what do, what do you want to read about? And I'd say, oh, pirates. She'd come home with a book on pirates or whatever it is. So I, reading became for me just a way of life. If I don't read literally two or three books a week, I mean, I feel like, man, I just wasted an entire week. <laughs> but one, and, and I like fiction. You know, of course, I, I study, study the Bible, you know, as much as I can. But I, I also enjoy fiction. And um, man, there's a good British fiction writer. I forget his name right now. Really good, really popular. But um one of his famous books was titled Pillars of the Earth. And look at, look at verse, boy, this print so small. Verse eight, the foundations of the earth belong to the Lord. That's the pillars of the earth. That's where he took that title from. So it's kind of interesting how influential the Bible is. And there's nothing Christian about that writer. You know, but it, it formed the Bible formed the foundation of, of Western culture. It formed the foundation of our Constitution, 100 percent. Right. We we've talked about on our Politics Friday episodes, the uh, real founding father of America was uh, John Calvin. Right. But that right. that's theology that 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 is the Bible just expressed through a great theologian, Calvin, you're not, you can, you can go through Calvin with a fine tooth comb. You're not, you're not going to find much error in there. He was sharp as a tack. Um, yeah. So on to James Madison. So I'm reading from John Eidsmo, Christianity and the constitution, his chapter on James Madison. James Madison is called the father of the Constitution. He spent over half a century in public service. A few of his positions included the youngest delegate to the Continental Congress, signer of the Declaration of Independence, 
member of the Constitutional Convention, leader of the pro-Constitution forces at the Virginia Ratifying Convention, champion of religious liberty in Virginia, main author of the Bill of Rights, author of the best notes of the convention, contributing author with Hamilton and John Jay to the Federalist Papers, Secretary of State, Chief Advisor to President Jefferson, two-term President of the United States, during which time he was Commander-in-Chief for the War of 1812 and Rector of the University of Virginia. So often you'll hear bandied about, right, at cocktail conversations and so on. Oh, the Federalist Papers, you know, the foundation of our country. And true enough that that's an accurate statement, but that that's Madison mm -hmm. that wrote a lot of that with Hamilton and John Jay. So more about James Madison. This is a quote from William Pierce a Georgia delegate to the convention. He said of Madison, Mr. Madison is a character who has long been in public life, but what is very remarkable about every person seems to acknowledge his greatness. He blends together the profound politician with the scholar. In the management of every great question, he evidently took the lead in the convention and though he cannot be called an orator, he is most agreeable, eloquent, and a convincing speaker. From a spirit of industry and application, which he possesses in a most eminent degree, he always comes forward the best informed man of any point in debate. The affairs of the United States, he perhaps has the most correct knowledge of, and any man in the Union. He's been twice a member of Congress, and he's always thought one of the ablest members that ever sat in that council. Mr. Madison is about 37 years of age, a gentleman of great modesty with a remarkable, remarkably sweet temper. He's easy and unreserved among his acquaintances, and he has a most agreeable style of conversation. Those are nice words. Yeah, no kidding. And that was when, just when he was 37, he, he lived to about 85, just a whole life full of work. Madison's education began at home. His mother and grandmother were his first teachers. His playmates were probably the children of black slaves. This fact influenced his anti-slavery views years later. The Madison Library, while not extensive, contained a number of volumes which probably stimulated his religious interest. Among the books were the Holy Bible, the Book of Common Prayer, Gospel Mystery of Sanctification, and the Life of Man in the Soul of God. Starting at about age 12, Madison went to school for several years under the tutelage of a Scotsman named Donald Robertson, and then under the Reverend Thomas Martin, an Episcopal minister who lived in the Madison home. Madison studied Latin, Greek, arithmetic, geography, algebra, geometry, literature, French, possibly Spanish under Robertson. The literary works he read included Virgil, Horace, Justinian's Institutes, Montaigne's Essays, Locks on Human Understanding, Montesquieu's Spirit of Laws, Smollett's History of England, The Intimation of Christ by Thomas Akempis, and others. Madison's notebook for that period contains various discussions and references to logic, astronomy, Socrates, Plato, Euclid, Fontenelle, and Locke. At one point, Madison said of Robertson, all that I have been in my life, I owe largely to that man. When Mad in 1769, when Madison was 18, he enrolled in college. Rather than attending the Episcopal William and Mary College at nearby Williamsburg, Virginia, 
Madison was sent to a Presbyterian college, the College of New Jersey, now known as Princeton. Do you remember last week who ran Princeton at that time, the College of New Jersey? Witherspoon? Witherspoon. <laughs> so that's where he went. And mm -hmm. that's why we said about Witherspoon, you know, you don't think of him as a founding father, but all the founding fathers were so influenced by him. Right. So Madison came under the direct influence of the college president, Reverend Witherspoon, while attending the College of New Jersey. Witherspoon stressed divinity and theology in addition to the usual curriculum of classes, classics, history, philosophy, writing and speaking of good, clear English. The college president seemed to have a special interest in Madison, recognizing him as a young man of great ability and dedication. The two retained their close association as they served in Congress together years later. Madison's interest in Christianity and a career in the ministry continued throughout his studies at the College of New Jersey. Bishop Mead, who had been in Madison's home on one occasion, said of him, Mr. Madison was sent to Princeton College, perhaps through fear of the skeptical principles that were so, then so prevalent at William and Mary. So let me step outside the text for a second. So you see, see what's going on. William and Mary is already sort of bending on the core issues of the faith. And so Madison went to the College of New Jersey, that is Princeton, because it was much more conservative. So I wouldn't have thought they'd be going uh, askew that early. That, that early that early. So here's uh, back to the text. During his stay at Princeton, a great revival took place. And it was believed that he partook of its spirit. On his return home, he conducted worship in his father's house. He soon after offered for the legislature that I think that means like ran, mm -hmm. you know, like you run for election. And it was objected to him by his opponents that he was better suited to the pulpit than to the legislative hall. <laughs> so he's at this crossroads in life, right? Ministry or politics. And he decides on politics and his opponents go, man, you'd, you'd have been way better in the ministry. But with the right attitude, politics should be ministry. That's exactly what I would say. And that, that's my suspicion is what he was thinking that the politics is my ministry and boy, have we reaped the benefits of that decision. So back to the text, Madison's closest friends at college were also of a religious nature and like Madison combined their religious interests with law and politics. William Bradford studied divinity, but later chose law as a career. Samuel Stanhope Smith became a Presbyterian minister and was Witherspoon's successor as president of the College of New Jersey. John Blair Smith, the Presbyterian minister, became president of Hampton Sydney College. Caleb Wallace, ordained a minister in the Presbyterian Church, later became a lawyer and justice of the Supreme Court of Kentucky. So all his closest friends had those same decisions. Half of them go to the ministry, half of them go into politics. Sometimes they do both. Madison received a baccalaureate degree from the College of New Jersey, September 29th, 1771. Still planning a theology career, he continued his education with graduate studies. He remained at Princeton for another half year or so of study under Dr. Witherspoon's direction, adding a little Hebrew to his knowledge of classical languages and literature, reading and theology and continuing his inquiries into a moral philosophy and political history and thought. He then returned to his family estate, Montpelier, and continued theological studies. Some updated Bible study notes, which appear to be from this period have been preserved Parts of the notes are quoted from William Burkett, expository notes with practical observations on the New Testament 
of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So then Eidsmo lists, you know, a bunch of these notes. So you can see Madison writing in his Bible, his notes on the text that he's reading. It's kind of interesting. Yeah. So we today have the, the net Bible with all his notes. I suppose back in the day, we could have had the Madison Bible. Right. <laughs> so um, let's move on to another section. This is interesting. It gets into, well, lay just a little bit of groundwork, but it gets into like his eight critical, critical beliefs. Maybe I'll start here. This is Eidsmo, and then, then we'll read a quote. Witherspoon's observations and beliefs on the sinfulness of man found their way into Madison's philosophy. Remember when you asked me, so, so what's the link between that rabbit trail and Madison? The sinfulness of man. That's the link. Madison also saw that a successful government must be based on a realistic assessment of human nature. So here's the Federalist. This is uh, number 51 written by Madison. Here's a paragraph from that. Ambition must be made to counteract ambition. The interest of the man must be connected with the constitutional rights of the place. It may be a reflection on human nature that such devices should be necessary to control the abuses of government. But what is government itself but the greatest of all reflections on human nature? If men were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels were to govern men, neither external or internal controls on government would be necessary. In framing a government which is to be administered by men over men, the great difficulty lies in this. You must first enable the government to control the governed and in the next place, oblige it to control itself. So you can see how that fundamental idea of the corrupt nature of mankind was the basis of everything Madison thought. Yeah. How about this sentence again? Let's consider it. But what is government itself but the greatest of all reflections on human nature? Wow, isn't that the case? So yeah. if we said earlier in my rant that the world of virology was so corrupt, there's only one other, quote, world that's corrupt, even more corrupt than that. And that's the world of government. So these are such critical thoughts, Hampton. Think, think of this. <clears throat> what our current government of representative democracy, right, a republic, is being replaced with is socialism slash communism. What is the socialist slash communist view of human nature? Because man, the view of yeah, man right, is basically good. Right. How insane is that? Tony Fauci's a good guy. Really? Joe Biden's a good guy. They are all corrupt in the extreme. I mean, imagine how much power is at those guys' fingertips with no, no real checks and balances. How often have you seen, even in your lifetime, especially in the last few years, but in your lifetime, um, people committing huge government crimes, there's never recompense. They never go to jail. They never suffer the consequences of, of what they did. Imagine at, at Trump's election, the guys that lied flat out to the FISA court attorneys what what was done to them that was discovered that they flat out lied right what what penalties did they ever suffer for that none not not any so far yeah it just doesn't happen comey's as corrupt as you get as the head of the fbi what, what's ever happening to him nothing right so so anyway the critical basis of our government is that mankind is corrupt. 
that's the core belief. And so we had such a good system uh, outside of it until Jesus Christ is back here, reigning immediately in our presence. You, you're going to have to figure out some sort of system that can deal with corruption. Communism is not the solution to that at, at all. Communism is the, it's like the, how do you say it? What are those phrases? Like the, the grease on the wheels of corruption. So here, um, here were, here were eight things. Sorry. Did you have something? To- I was going to say when you uh, look at the way the world is going, it's hard to be a post-millennialist. Isn't it? Yeah, boy. I, I'll tell you, that's a great thought. The way the world is going would lead anyone to be a biblical literalist, I would think, because <laughs> it's going down exactly how the word said it was going to go down. And it, and it has throughout history. I, I think one of the greatest um, apologetics for, and when I say literal, I mean normal, right? If you, yeah. You know, if Jesus is the door, I don't think he's a eight by four piece of wood, right? <laughs> I think that's a metaphor for, you know, the way of entrance and so on. But you know what I'm saying? I, I think literal means normal, I think is the best way to understand that. But one of the greatest apologetics for that, in my mind, is we'll just read prophecy. Uh, where was Jesus going to be born? Didn't it say Bethlehem? Mm-hmm. Well, where was he born? Bethlehem, <laughs> right? Where, where's the mystery in that? It's just exactly what he said. And, and you could mystify that. You could say, well, Bethlehem, that's Beit Lechem. That's really the house of bread. Who knows? That could mean. No, it means Bethlehem, the city, the little suburb of Jerusalem. You know what I mean? It's exactly what the. Oh, gosh, you're getting me on a rabbit trail. Okay, back to Madison. Eight points that were critical for him. Power must come from the people. Do you think we have that today? Do you and I have a voice? Doesn't seem like it anymore. Sure doesn't seem like it. They've taken the vote away from us. So here's a quote from Madison. A dependence on the people is no doubt the primary control on the government. But experience has taught mankind the necessity of auxiliary precautions. Like you're going to need some extra power. You, you need to vote them out of office, but you're going to need some extra power, which is the, the checks and balances. But now we can't vote them out of office. Your, your vote gets put into a computer program. And what is spit out is the result they want. Imagine that. What's the name of that? Um, computer system again? I know. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Dominion. I'm just, yeah, Dominion. Hmm. What a surprise. Okay, his second point. The government has only such powers as the people delegate to it through the social covenant, the Constitution. Madison emphasized that the powers of government are derivative and limited. Third, Madison believed this covenant cannot contravene the law of nature and of nature's God. Remember our couple podcasts on the natural law? Right. That, that's what he's referring to. Fourth, Madison supported the separation of powers between the legislative, executive, and judicial branches of government. Each branch would have limited power to minimize the danger of abuse. Fifth, Madison favored the nexus imperii spoken of by Witherspoon, those checks and balances by which the various branches of government are independent on one another. So then this goes into some detail, but it's essentially the same point. Balance the powers. Each one can check the other. Sixth, Madison, by the way, think of that today. They all all work in concert. Yeah. So six. Not checking and balancing. Right. So six, Madison saw the bulwark of free government in the multiplicity of interests that prevailed across America. If no one 
person or group of persons usurped too much power, each could check the other and keep everyone under control. This multiplicity of interests, he said, would work best if there existed in society so many separate descriptions of citizens as will render an unjust combination of a majority of the whole very improbable, if not impracticable. Pause there for a second, and then we'll take on the next two. You know what's a, a fascinating study, Hampton, is the uh, Federal Reserve. Right. That was that was established maybe 1914, 1915, maybe yeah. around there somewhere. Yeah. Um, at that time, in in our nation's history, I'm just guessing at these numbers. I bet they're ballpark. I think the wealth of the United States, the percentage of wealth in the U.S. that was in about eight people's hands was about 90%. You know, think of, for instance, uh, John Rockefeller, that around that time, around 1900, 1905, had over $250 billion dollars in 1905 Hampton. Oh imagine well, imagine what a dollar then was compared to today. Yeah. He had over 250 billion. Starting out, by the way, little plug, Cleveland, Ohio. He's <laughs> from, from New York, but as a young guy, you know, late teenager went to Cleveland. Knocked on doors, it's penniless. Knocked on doors for months. Hey, do you need any help? I can do your books. I can do X, Y, Z. I'll do anything you want for months. Finally got a job. It's a fascinating story. But anyway, so you had like Rockefeller and you had a couple banking families, right? The Morgan family. Right. And the German guys. Um, oh, what was it? Warburg. So you had those two great, huge banking houses. Warburg, probably more influential than Morgan in a lot of ways. And so, you know, a handful of other people, about those eight people had, who knows, might've been more than 90% of the wealth in America in those bands. They set up the Federal Reserve. Do you think there's possibly corruption in that? Maybe a little. <laughs> Oh, my. Okay, last two points from Madison. Seventh, Madison advocated moderation. He exemplified moderation in both his private life and in his political relations. As an ally of Jefferson, he tried to moderate Jefferson's extremes, and he pursued a moderate course throughout his own presidency. His personality seemed to bespeak moderation. Last point, he opposed slavery. Kind of interesting. He had slaves, but he opposed slavery. Some of what he was thinking was, you know, if I send you out into the world, that's actually not going to be that good for you. That's why he, I know that sounds weird, but that, that was his thinking. I mean, he cared for him. Here's a quote from Paul Jennings, slave, born and raised on Madison's estate. He says this, Mr. Madison, I think, was one of the best men that ever lived. I never saw him in a passion, never knew him to strike a slave, although he had over a hundred. Never would he allow an overseer to do it. Whenever any slaves were reported to him as stealing or cutting up, Badly, he'd send for them and admonish them privately. Never mortify them by doing it before others. They generally served him very faithfully. I don't think he drank a quart of brandy in his whole life. For the last 15 years of his life, he drank no wine at all. So that's a slave. Mm -hmm. Talking about Madison. It, those were very difficult times. I'm not not defending it i'm just saying i don't think it's as easy as people think to come out of that sort of culture um he, he was opposed to slavery yeah 
So, yeah. So that's Madison. There's more we could say, but that that's Madison. Those I just get um, you get encouraged reading these guys about how well they accomplish the task of setting up the government of the United States. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, you just almost want to cry because we've we've lost that. Yeah, it is just um, depressing to see how far we've fallen. Oh, boy. Okay, Hampton, you rabbit trailed me today. I don't think it was my fault this time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay. Uh, Until next time. Thank you. I'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. Therefore, I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may test and approve what is the will of God, what is good and well-pleasing, and perfect. Oh,